In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If we were following the news this week, you may have seen that the Southern Baptist Convention formally voted to expel two churches that employed female pastors. And then to go on to pass an amendment that made it crystal clear that women were not allowed to serve as pastors of any kind in any church that wished to call itself Southern Baptist. On the one hand, this should not have come as a surprise, given that this has been their denomination's teaching for decades. But on the other hand, such an emphatic, and it was emphatic, the vote was not close, it was something like 80 to 90 percent of the delegates voted in favor of these expulsions and this amendment. Such an emphatic shutting of the door on any sort of female pastoral leadership in the largest Protestant denomination in America was still painful to see. The stated rationale for this decision is that it is scriptural, which really just means they have elected to read certain passages from the Bible as unalterable and others as not, such as Jesus' inclusion of women as his disciples, his close relationship with Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene, the female leadership that was obviously involved in the early church according to Paul's authentic letters, but I realize here I am preaching to the choir. I hope you know, I hope it is obvious that the Episcopal Church recognizes women as valid and valued members and leaders, from laity to deacon to priest to bishop. So I'm not interested in arguing that point this morning. But what this week's news does give me cause to talk about is a matter that is also very important and, in fact, very personal to me. And that is what these kinds of theological arguments and decisions say about the understanding of manhood and masculinity that large swaths of Christian churches promote. I say this is a personal matter to me because having been a football player and an opera singer and now a priest, I've had the chance in my life to view from many different angles the way that society subtly and not so subtly shapes the idea of what it is to be a man. And it's a subject I have researched and written about elsewhere but never preached on. But with this week's news and this being Father's Day, it seemed appropriate to bring to the pulpit. So I hope that if you are a man, if you wish to exhibit a masculine gender identity, or if you love someone who is a man, so I hope that's all of us in there somewhere, this will feel as important and urgent an issue to you as it does to me. So, in order to understand how in 2023 a denomination of over 13 million people can be moving backwards, in the issue of female church leadership, we need to understand something of the larger context. Now, over the last hundred years or so, as society has modernized and the engines of our economy have moved more from the industrial to the intellectual, there has been an increasingly pervasive anxiety about what it means to be a man in the modern world. And this crisis has reached something of a climax here in the 21st century. For example, boys now lag behind girls at every level of schooling. And in college graduations, it's tipping about two to one, women to men. 
Men are dropping out of the workforce at exponentially higher rates, and the measures of men's mental and physical health are trending more and more towards the terror. Based on these facts and others, it is clear that there is a large proportion of men who are failing to make the adjustment to a, a happy and healthy life in today's world. As a result, you can barely go a month or two without seeing a book or an op-ed or an article from professors or pundits or journalists or politicians about what is wrong with men and boys. It is, by now, a well-verified crisis. Now, the answers offered to help solve this crisis often fall into one of two categories. An impassioned and sometimes aggressive plea for a return to authentic, traditional men versus an argument to move away from any generalized ideas about masculinity for fear that such categorizations are inherently reductive and restrictive. Unfortunately, neither of these approaches seems to be doing much to help. Dissolving all traditionally masculine attributes risks losing things that may be positive characteristics and virtues for men and others to aspire to leaving many of those who self-identify as men in this society somewhat adrift and purposeless. But a retrenchment into traditional masculinity risks even more dire consequences. By doubling down on troubling attitudes and behavior that shows no willingness to adapt to a way of life that requires more of men than being Neanderthals or kings of the castle. This approach is so problematic, in fact, that in 2019, the American Psychological Association designated traditional masculinity, which they defined as a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, standards which include anti-femininity, achievement at all costs, a shul of the appearance of weakness, Adventure, risk, and violence has categorized these as harmful because the evidence shows that these standards have led to an increased rate of suicide, substance abuse, violent behavior, unwillingness to seek medical or psychological help, and premature death for men. These depths of despair or why many now refer to traditional masculinity as toxic. Because it is killing us. And it is leading to more and more men who are languishing or lashing out or dying. It is into that cultural context that the church has stepped. And not always very helpfully. Unfortunately, in the last 50 years or so, through avenues like the Christian Broadcasting Network and other media outlets, as well as in its churches, large portions of Christianity, particularly in the evangelical strain, but not exclusively, they have been the chief purveyors of this very toxic form of masculinity. This may be news to those of you who are cradle Episcopalians and who did not grow up in the world of men's ministries or the men's movement, but I assure you, and others will assure you with me, that this is a real thing. That there is a model of Christian manhood that is based on unquestioned patriarchal authority, 
gender complementarianism and unequivocal heterosexuality, and that has been what is put up as the vision of a godly man, as dominant and authoritative, and even pushing into domineering and aggressive. One example I read that I find amusing is about a church that uh, refused to hold men's retreats because real men don't retreat. <laughs> so they called all their outings men's advances, which I don't think sounded the way they wanted it to. <laughs> Even the uber macho man, John Wayne, right? has seen something of a resurgence in many Christian circles over recent decades as the embodiment of traditional, godly masculinity. So much so that one of the latest and best researched books charting this connection between Christianity and toxic masculinity is titled Jesus and John Wayne. This is the context in which many of those voting in the Southern Baptist Convention last week were brought up with a masculinity that is not to be questioned or threatened by the inclusion of female pastors anywhere near their church. There's just one problem. John Wayne is not the Son of God. Jesus is. And this vision of Christian masculinity, while purportedly scriptural, has absolutely nothing to do with the life and witness of Jesus Christ. Because if we were to take seriously Jesus, we would encounter attributes and characteristics and traits, both in himself and in the way he told his followers to behave, that fly in the face of this traditional or toxic masculinity, while still maintaining virtue and strength. It's just that those virtues and strengths are exhibited in a very different way. I could run you through page and page of the Gospels to make this point, but let's just take as an example this morning's Gospel reading. Jesus' ministry has begun in earnest, and here we get a window into his operations as they are coming together. And right at the outset of this passage, we get one of the chief components of Jesus' character on display. And that is compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion is the primary attribute of Jesus' personality and therefore, right, should be the cornerstone of our discipleship. So what would it look like if the foundation of what we consider to be Christian masculinity was compassion? What difference would that make? It is in that spirit of compassion that Jesus then moves on to instruct his twelve disciples and how they are to take up his work as his followers. And here some would point out, and they have, well, these are all men. If he had wanted women to be apostles, he would have chosen them, which I find to be an unconvincing argument. He is sending out a, a small subset 
of his followers, just as likely because in that society men were the ones that could move freely through the countryside and dwell in strangers' homes in a way that women could not. We certainly know that these men did not possess any exceptional gifts or qualities that made them especially suited for this ministry. In fact, they are all the ones who are going to fail to follow Jesus to the end, denying, betraying, and abandoning him, while it is the women who will see him all the way to the cross and be there when he appears at the empty tomb. But I digress. How does he tell these men to go about their missional work? As an army of unleashed force to jam his gospel upon the unbelievers and save their souls? No. First of all, he says, don't go looking for a fight. Don't go to the people who you already have a conflict with, the Gentiles and the Samaritans. Start with those people who you know, the people of Israel. And as you go, don't bring anything with you. No staff, no money, no extra clothes. Be dependent, not independent. Be vulnerable, not violent. Be humble, not forceful. Share your gifts, yes, peacefully. But don't demand payment. Leave yourself at the mercy of others. If they pay you, if they welcome you, great. Receive it, stay with them. If not, move on. It's not your job to exact retribution. It's not your job to bludgeon them into belief, but to invite them into a life of beauty and blessing that you embody. That is how he is telling these men to go about their Christian discipleship, not with dominance and force, but with peace and invitation and humility. Unless anyone thinks such behavior would be weak or cowardly, Jesus makes clear that this way of life will still lead to hardship and suffering which must be endured with strength and with courage and with a certain steadfastness. But suffer for speaking peace, he's saying. Persevere when faced with injustice. Endure by faith, not by force. This is the model of discipleship that Jesus both embodied and encouraged, and I wonder how we strayed so far from that idea. Now, I could go on and speak about the emotional availability of Jesus, his commitment to putting love into action and in practice by giving himself selflessly to others. And there are more valuable attributes to aspire to, but the bottom line is this. If we could recover an idea of Christian masculinity that was actually based on Christ, not only do I think we would have more female leadership in the church, I also think we would be giving men, and those who want to be men, traits that would help them to thrive in the modern world rather than just survive, rather than rail against it as they sink deeper into the mires of despair and bitterness. I'm the father of two boys. So this is a question I think a lot about, not only as a man, not only as a priest, but as a dad. How are my boys going to learn positive 
constructive lessons of what it means to be a man. Where are those messages going to come from? Could they learn that in church? I think they could. And in fact, I think they should. Because here, we have a model for manhood that is courageous and resilient and strong, but also compassionate, humble, and loving. Now surely, those are worthy attributes for all of us to aspire to, but especially those of us who for too long have been told to eschew them in favor of a false, uh, constrained, and constricting vision of manhood that is only dominant and domineering. A vision which is holding too many members of our society from the fullness of life and love to which they are called. It pains me that so many men have been disturbed by our society and our churches by only being offered a limited, toxic way of living. And that it has led so many of them into states of death and despair. And it pains me even more that the church has so often been the one leading them astray, but it does not need to be this way. We can help. Because I believe the answer to this modern crisis of masculinity is actually very old indeed. Helping men to hear again, or maybe for the first time, the simple ageless call of Jesus Christ when he says follow me Amen